Welcome to the VoxGig Developer Relations Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Roger. I speak to people in the software development community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. I'm the CEO of VoxGig, a software consultancy that builds DevRel tools. Because we believe in the power of community, we host a monthly virtual online meetup for everyone in developer relations. Check out devrelmeetup.com. And visit voxgig.com to view our work, use our tools, and sign up for our newsletter. Okay. Please sit back and enjoy my fireside chat with today's guest. I'm talking to David Bisak, Chief API Officer at Aperture, a US digital banking provider. Imagine the responsibility that goes with building APIs for hundreds of banks. If you want to know how to make your APIs robust and secure, this is the interview for you. David, welcome to the Fireside Box Gig podcast, talking about developer relations, but really talking about APIs, because that's what developer relations is mostly all about. Um, why don't we start with uh, me asking you what you do and who you work for? Okay, thank you, Richard. Um, yeah, so I'm Dave Bisak. I'm a Chief API Officer at Aperture. Aperture is a digital banking provider in the US, so we provide online banking services. We run the financial institutions, um, web application and mobile applications to enable their banking customers to do online digital banking. And, and we also run all the backend processes and tools and reporting, et cetera, for the financial institutions so that they can get maximum value out of their, their online banking. That's a really nice, uh, short and sweet. Uh, I, I'm curious. So, how, I mean, how many banks outsource this stuff to uh you know, to serve to, to implementation providers like like you guys versus building it in-house? Um, most of the banks in the U.S. do that. The, the larger national banks, you know, yeah. when you talk about you know, Bank of America, et cetera, you know, they, they build their own products. But most banks and our, most of our companies are smaller community banks gotcha. and gotcha. unions. Um, and they don't have an IT shop that they can really manage billing their own online banking application. It's a very complicated process. Um, a lot of the big bank providers, you know, we talk about FIS, Fiserv, Jack Henry, et cetera, they provide some online banking capabilities, but Aperture goes beyond those. And, and we really target those customers and try to meet needs that aren't met by those banking providers. So most of the banks will outsource their online banking through a provider uh, like Aperture. Um, we have around 300 of these customers around the, the country, but they tend to be the smaller banks and, and we're, we're trying to you know, attract a little bit more regional banks and things like that. But but it tends to be the smaller banks that just don't have the the staff to to run an IT. It's a very complicated process. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, APIs are easy. Everybody could do them. Chat GPT, API done, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not worried? Uh, Okay, so I mean, do you go do you go to the banks and you say, well, here's like a standard API structure that you should use, or is it is every case different? How do you end up designing these APIs? Right. So Aperture provides APIs, and the way that we host everything is is really a multi-tenant solution. So it's the same platform for all of our customers, gotcha. and that there are, there are ways for the 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 FI to customize what features are enabled. So we have feature flagging and things like that and other customization hooks within the administrative platform to configure how their online banking system works. Um, but we have the same set of APIs that then work for all of our, our customers. Um, so it's, it's a standard set of APIs that deliver basic features for online banking. So we have an accounts API that lets you list all of your 
internal accounts and also any kind of linked external accounts that you have at another financial institution. So you can do transfers between your internal and external accounts. We have a transfers API, a transactions API, and things like that. We have a lot of APIs around um, business banking. So doing business transfers, ACH transfers, wire transfers, et cetera. Um, so it's basically APIs that support the typical banking activity that a user gets through their banking application. Um, and it's the same set of APIs for all of our customers. We don't customize the APIs for each individual customer. Um, but Aperture is very aware of the customer's needs. And so we have a process where if customers have a new feature they want to be to implement, we will contract with that provider and we'll implement a new feature. And typically that will entail building some APIs to enable that capability. And that becomes then part of the platform that we can then provide to other financial institutions as well if they want to add that capability to their platform. Gotcha. They must be running different versions though, right? You must have different banks on different versions. No, no. Since since it's multi-tenant, we have one version of the platform for for everybody. So how do you manage versioning? Very, let's just, very let's just get straight into it, right? This is this is the big one. Sure, sure. Very, very <laughs> carefully. So um, it, it goes back to knowing that APIs will evolve. And so okay. we, we're very, very careful when we design APIs to design for evolution. And when we work with our product teams, when they talk about a new feature, we always discuss with them what is likely to change. And most of APIs is really change management. Changing, You're managing changes in the backend or, or the infrastructure, et cetera, and you're encapsulating that or isolating your API consumers from those changes. So we're very, very careful to, to look at how an API might change over time. So we look at something that the, the product manager might come along for, at first and say, well, this is just a Boolean property. It's, it's either yeah. true or false. And we always say, is it possible it's going to change in the future? Or, or maybe it's going to be a third state. Maybe there's an unknown state that it has to be managed. Um, same thing with, with cardinality of all resources. So when you talk about things like in banking, you've got things like debit cards and credit cards, and you can have cardholders attached to different accounts. What's the cardinality of all these relationships? We always try to plan for that where maybe it's going to be multiple things in the future. So we'll design things in the APIs as arrays rather than just as single values. Um, yeah. To allow for yeah. us to extend the API in the future. We also try to define all resources as objects because it's easier to extend an object than it is to extend a, a string. Um, gotcha. So, if wow. you okay. array of strings, we'll, we'll model that as an array of objects with have, that'll have a string value in it so that we can add a new property in the future if we need that. So, we're always designing for extensibility. And that way, we have you know, one version of the platform that's running at any given time, and we don't have to worry too much about versioning. And since we provide the the front end application as well for our bank customers, we own the front end and the back end in the majority of the cases. Now we do have some customers that consume our APIs directly and and some capabilities. Um, And so we we do worry about versioning in that case if, if they've got a client. So we're always conscious of that. We try to design for upwards compatibility um, in the APIs so oh, that we wow. don't have yeah. pages. That's a that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I speak to a lot of people who build APIs, and that just that okay. Well, cardinality, cardinality, kind of counts, it's, right? You got to to think about very very early in the process. Is always designed for extensibility, designed for change. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I've been caught out by that particular issue. So many yeah. times, yeah. I yeah. yeah, you're you're speaking to me. <laughs> Do you embed the version numbers in 
your uh, URLs or how does that work? No, we, we, we don't because we want to have durable URLs. Um, so we gotcha. have a resource URL identifies that resource and and the resource itself is independent of the version of the software that's running it's always going to be here's the address of that resource and we want that to be durable across time um, so we don't embed the the version number in the urls so you you're effectively going for lo- long-term backwards compatibility right there's yes. an endpoint and it's always going yes. to work yes so do you have i mean do you do you end up with situations where you have an endpoint that had an assumed data model, and then you're translating the data model into a newer version or destructuring it in some way. And then do you yeah, call so, so sort of, do you call the new version this, or how does that? Yeah, work? so that's sort of this the Stripe model of doing things yeah. where you have runtime where you look at like a version header and determine, oh, you're you're calling me expecting version one, but I'm on version two, so I'm going to down convert from version two to version one for you. We don't do that yet. Um, it's it's something we're we're, we're looking. Um, at a possible way of doing that. Um, we have some infrastructure in place for, for doing that, but we haven't been forced to do that yet. Um, so, But that's probably where we're going to go if we get to that point where we really do need to support um, virtual versions uh, at runtime would be more of yeah. the Stripe model where we can translate between versions at runtime and add those translation layers in the middleware. It's It's a very difficult process, certainly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, hey, that's why they pay us the big bucks for <laughs> developer relations, right? Uh, well, let's talk about developer relations because uh, I just love your title, right? Chief API Officer. That is, that's fabulous. So many yes. companies need one and they don't have one and they, re- and they really should. Was that, I mean, is that a role that emerged or was that a role designed into the organization from the start? I pretty much grew into that. So yeah. um, I was hired into the company when it was founded. So Aperture arose as a spinoff from a joint venture between Live Oak Bank, which is currently the, the nation's leading small business administration lender in the country. Um, and and they had a partnership with First Data, which had a product for online banking, which was called Funds Express. And they decided, let's create an Aperture or an API-focused digital banking solution that we can then build as an API-focused platform and then be able to grow and sell that as as a separate product. Um, So LiveOak Bank is is all online. They don't have branches. Um, Everything they do is online, but they focus on on business lending, right? Um, And whereas Funds Express was designed as the platform that supported both consumer and business banking, um, so it was kind of a nice, and they they had uh, an API that part of their system, um, but it was it was embedded within First Data Corporation, so it, it was kind of struggling to break free. Um, so it was kind of a nice opportunity for the two groups to come together and produce something new, and and was we were really launched with a focus on APIs. So it's actually in our name. It's the first part of Aperture. Yeah. Is well, API. Um, so yeah, um, it was it was. The founders understood the value of APIs um, for the future of, you know, financial um, technology in, in the United States. Okay, so, so, so you were starting. You were you were effectively starting with a legacy code base, though, right? Because they they would have had they had an existing implementation. Or did you start from? Did you start Greenfield and say, "Hey, let's just build everything from the start"? Or 
Right. So it, it, it was a little bit of a hybrid approach. Okay. So we had a legacy product um, that we actually maintained for quite a while. And we launched a, a, a new product that was really Greenfield. Um, and, and that is still available, but really we're not focusing on that anymore. We're really focusing on evolving what was that legacy product that came out of Funds Express. Um, and now that is really the Aperture Digital Banking platform. And that's where we're building all of our new APIs to add new capabilities to gotcha. that platform to, yeah. to meet business needs. So that I mean that API must have been pretty well designed to begin with, if it's if it's capable of sustaining that level of change over time, right? Well, most of that application wasn't very API focused. So there was an API ah. for, for for the mobile application, but the prime the primary focus most of the architecture of that application was built on server-generated pages. Um, mm. And so we're, we're migrating away from that and, and going with API first now. So whenever there's a new feature, we, we start with the API design. Well, I mean, we, we actually start with doing the requirements analysis and the product team decides what we want to build. And, and we've got lots of really expert domain experts within the company who understand banking. They work directly with the bankers and they interpret, you know, customer needs. And then we'll, we'll give us those requirements and say, we want to add this particular feature. Um, and, and they will work with us and we, we help them refine those features to define smart requirements that then drive both the user interface design and the API design. Um, gotcha. It's nice because we do it at API first because then we're really solidifying what the behavior is that the software is going to provide. And we can define those contracts, what the data models look like, what the set of operations are, and what the interaction is with those operations. And then that will help with the UI design to how they're going to code the, the front end to call those APIs and get that data, collect that data from the user um, or display that data to the user, et cetera. Um, so we, we get a lot of benefit from that. Uh, we can We can then design those APIs. We use OpenAPI 3.1 for all of our API design. All of our APIs are RESTful APIs. We, we don't really yeah. do much with async API, gRPC, et cetera. Um, so it's all, all straight RESTful API design. Um, and then the implementation team will then take the API design and then we'll, they will start with their code generation, which we can kick off of that, that OpenAPI model. They can We can generate some backend stubs. They'll implement the API according to that contract. Part of the cogeneration, they'll they'll generate data models for all the resources and all the um, request and response bodies that wow, come. Wow, you're not API. kidding when you say API first. That's so you use yeah, cogeneration yeah. off the API. Yeah, okay. Yes. that must be pretty powerful. Uh, it, it really is um, yeah. because it gives it gives developers a real good leg up. So um, you know, we we give them we give them data that they can work with, and and so they get some some compiler type safety in there as well, um, so that it, it can guide them within the IDE with code completion and things like that. So we also um, generate SDKs off of the open APIs, and we publish those internally um, for yeah. anybody who's building the front ends, or or if even on the back end, if you're calling other APIs on the back end, you can use these SDKs to to invoke the. Aperture APIs that you, way. How do you well. do the code generation? Is is that some custom internal code, or do you use tooling to do that? Oh, we we use tooling for that. Yeah. So um, so our infrastructure we we run on open source Jenkins. So all of our sources in Git, um, the open APIs are mostly in a single open API repository. So we have a, 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 a 
banking API def repository where all the different APIs are, accounts API, transactions API, payments yeah. APIs, and so they're all all in one repo, which allows us to to use Open API to reuse components. So we have a common API where we have like common data structures that are shared across lots of our different APIs. But within the accounts API, we may have like an account reference object or, or something that other APIs can then use as well by yeah, just referencing yeah. those. Um, so it's nice from a development perspective because you can build these APIs and, and call upon resources and response objects that are predefined for us already. Um, and, and then you don't have to write, create everything from scratch every single time. We also have a tool that I implemented, um, when I first joined the company that does open API generation. So we have high level, um, traits and patterns that we, that occur over and over again. And so we, we've codified those into a tool that we can describe with a small set of annotations, and then it will generate, um, your open API structure for you using our internal conventions and modeling of how we want to build things. So we use JSON schema composition quite often to, to build our, our uh, resource models, et cetera. Um, wow, so this helps with nice. all of that, which, which really lends, uh, gives us a good, good amount of consistency across APIs because we reuse the same patterns over and over again, whether sure. it's pagination, et cetera. We use all the same structures and and the same API design gets codified into all our all of our APIs because we're using that same code generation at the very beginning um, that captures kind of our design. APIs. We have a review process. We we tie in a bunch of third party like linting tools. So we use Spectral, and Spectral has an OWASP. API security top 10 rule set that we also look apply to our API design so we can detect or find any potential vulnerabilities very early in the process. So that wow. tells us, you know, if we've got like strings, if we don't put a, a max length constraint on string data, you know, it's going to flag that for us. Or if we've got arrays and we don't have a max items constraint on those arrays, it will flag that for us. And that helps us prevent denial of service attacks because we can validate requests at the edge um, and if if it doesn't satisfy the JSON schema, if it's too large, for example, we can reject those requests right off the bat as malicious data, and it never gets to our back end where it's much more expensive to make those types of checks. So, so we apply that very early in our process. So it's kind of a shift left mentality yeah. as far as security is concerned. We do that code generation, as I mentioned. We're not yet um, fully utilizing mocking, but but that's one thing that I really want us to start looking at is taking our API definitions and generating mocks so that the UI, the front-end team, can start coding against those mocks. For that way, and, implementations, and yeah. Get, get, the, get, the get the contract part right, get the integration part coded correctly um, with, with just mock data and, and mock API calls. David, do you have a problem with Drift? By which I mean, so you, co you code generate from an API the mm -hmm. initial implementation. And then presumably the API does change over time. Do you regenerate right. the code or is does the code have to then be manually updated? So so there's a couple of different ways that that happens, but but typically um and it depends on what the backend team is using because we've got a couple of different technologies that are used on the back end. But with the with the code generation that we have, we generate stubs, and then those stubs then get attached to implementations. So if there is a change in the API, 
you'll have a stub that's not implemented. Um, or if there's a contract level change, then the, the, the stub generation is not going to match the, the backend gotcha. implementation that okay. tied to it. And so you, you're going to get a compile error for something like that. So that'll catch it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's always been a challenge. And I've used code generation over the years as well. It's always been a challenge where you end up with sort of hairy situations where you're using comments yeah. to extract bits of code. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I've done all the mistakes. <laughs> I've, right. I've done it all the wrong ways. Um, yeah, I mean, let's just go back to that term API first, right? Which is, we were talking before, and I said that's part of the reason I, I kind of wanted to get you on to have a chat because um, sometimes what we see with some of our clients when they bring us in after the fact is they've built uh, they they built a web app to begin with, and then they've taken the uh, HTTP requests the service that it's usually a single page app. The HTTP requests, notice that I'm not <laughs> calling it an API, that service <laughs> this right. web app, they declare that to be an API. Right. right. Um, and that leads to all sorts of fun and games. Um, whereas this approach of looking at the requirements, defining an, a, a, an API, right, which forces you to define the data model and the business logic and the interactions. Um, right. I mean that that strikes me as something that would benefit a great many software development efforts, not just your particular case of um, servicing right. uh, serving banking right. APIs. As a general principle, I think <laughs> I think it would help a lot of people. It, it really does. So it's it's really strongly based on domain driven design, right? Um, which, okay. which is what we we view as really being a really good way of capturing requirements and, and getting that common understanding. So um, DDD kind of focuses on you know, what they call the ubiquitous language, um, which is making sure everybody understands the terminology and what each term means and, and within a domain. Um, and usually try to capture that from your domain experts who really understand the process, the business process that, that you're trying to emulate with your or model with your, with your software. Um, so capture those ideas down. And then it, it's easier to translate those requirements into an API once you've done that domain modeling and really kind of captured the behavior and what you really want to achieve from that API and, and do the business process modeling that way. Um, we're still not fully there because oftentimes we end up first going to, let's mock up what the user interface is going to look like. Um, that's an It's an easy yeah. thing for most yeah. to grasp. Um, but what happens is, you know, you know, the, they'll ask the design team to put together a UI mock, um, and 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 then they they give that to us and say, well, this is what we want the user interface to look like. Can we get an API to support it? And I say, okay, but where are the requirements? Where, what's the behavior behind the yeah. user interface? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And what 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 information? What yeah. what requirements did you give the UI team in order to build that user interface? So you know, you I, it's obvious to look at the user interface and say, okay, here's a form that has five different fields in, but what's the meaning of each of those fields yeah. and what are its constraints? What, what, what values are allowed for that particular field? What are its minimum values? What are its maximum values? Is there a pattern that's associated with it, et cetera? You know, that information is always missing when you look at just a, yeah. a, a figment or a, some other UI mock-up of, of what the, the application is going to look like. But does, so we have to go back to, to the beginning and really capture those, those requirements earlier in the process. And let's, let's get those written down. Yeah. 
have them drive the user interface and drive the API. There's quite a dependency on things like Figma, an over-dependency in software. Over-dependency, yes. Uh, Because you're exactly right. So, yes, there's a form, but what is the domain model? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I understand that because, you know, People, you know, when they're when they're good at using a tool, they're going to kind of fall on that, that tool and and use it. And this is what you said earlier about you know extracting an API from an implementation. A lot of people are very comfortable with mocking something up. Let me throw some code together and 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 give you you know put together a tracer bullet or some other thing. I'm really comfortable with building things. You know, I want to write some software and 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 let's figure it out together. You know, and that's going a little bit too agile. I think. Um, where you you end up creating things that may not map well to a good API design because you're forced into an API that conforms to a specific implementation choice. And we're trying to avoid that as much as possible. Now, we, we, we do have a legacy application, so we are constrained in our case by what we can do on the back end based on that legacy architecture. So we have to connect to all these different bank cores that our customers use, whether it's Fiserv, FIS, Jack Henry. You know, there's a whole bunch of 40 different cores that we all connect to. Um, we have to make an abstraction for what that core is. So we have like a virtual core. There's, there's a standard API that we can talk to the core. What can we get out of that core? And we have a, like an adapter layer that provides yeah, but there are constraints for all those different backends. So we have a virtual core that we can talk to. And so if we need new capabilities, you know, we need to add that that capability to that virtual core and then provide implementation or mappings to the actual runtime cores for those capabilities. So um, like one of the features that that's that our credit union customers really like is being able to do member to member transfers. Mm. If if I bank at this credit union and then my daughter or or son open up a, an account at that credit union before they go off to college, then I can transfer money directly into their account um, within the, that same financial institution. Um, and credit union customers really like that. That's not something that's easily expressed on all of the different bank cores. So we have to create that, that core integration yeah. first, and then we create the APIs to enable that capability um, and and we create the APIs with those domain models so we know how to map that high-level API abstraction layer into the core abstraction layer and, and coming back out going the other direction as well. So that's typically how we do those types of integrations. Um, and so we, that's pretty frequent where we do that with other fintech providers as well, whether it's statement providers who issue your, your bank statements and, and print those for you and, and your tax statements and things like that, um, or other types of fintechs for, for things. And a lot of times those are single sign-on type integrations as well. So they're not API driven, they're more UI um, focused integrations, but but we have quite a few backend implementations with, with providers that you know, we deliver those capabilities. Given that you're working with APIs, right? You're, you're exposing them and you're consuming them, we, we consume uh, a, bit of a, a number of APIs yeah. from our fintech providers, from from all these uh, these core providers. Also, are, are API driven, um, and and that's what's hard. And it's that that's why at the beginning you asked me how many banks build their own applications. <laughs> very very few because these it's APIs, a lot of work. Yeah. these APIs that come from these these core banking providers are usually pretty legacy type APIs. They're, they're XML APIs or something, and they're very, very hard to work with. They're often not documented very well, or they're not really designed for the consumer. They're really designed as APIs that expose 
the backend implementation rather than designed for solving particular business problems. Yeah. And so that's that's where you know Aperture has taken the view that we're going to design APIs that solve problems, and it's up to us to do the hard work to map them into the backend here and translate them into yeah these weird legacy yeah. tools. Exactly. I mean, let's, let's talk about documentation because it sounds, yeah. given the scale of what you're doing, David, it sounds like documentation has got to be a challenge, right? How do you how do you address that issue? Do you document um, your own stuff for internal use? Do you document this yeah. wrapper? Does it get so, priority? Does it does it fall out of out of date? You know, all the all the classical issues and challenges people have with documentation. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's fortunate because I really like writing documentation um, because I've been in the software business for 40 years, right? Um, and the one thing that I always hate is when I'm I'm asked to use some library or some system and the documentation just sucks. Mm. And I know that pain because I've, I've I've experienced it so many times. So I actually like writing documentation. I like you know translating those product requirements into an API architecture and describing here is the operation. This is what this this um, data model is. And I don't just describe what the fields are, but I describe the meaning of those fields. What does it mean to change this particular field? What does it mean to to invoke this operation? What are the side effects that are caused by it? So if you've got like a debit card and the customer wants to lock their debit card, you know, we'll have an operation in the API to lock that debit card, but we'll describe what the side effects are. You know, we're going to change this, yeah. the internal state of that property of that object. It'll mean, what does it mean for any in-flight transactions, et cetera? So we try to, and I try to document as much as I can in the API. So that the consumers, I try to answer all their questions. I anticipate what the questions are going to be. Because as a developer, I know what type of questions people are going to ask about a contract. Um, so I like documenting that. Um, it helps a little bit, with, as I mentioned before, with our co-generation type stuff. So we can generate stubs for the documentation as well. And then we use, course, our linting rules, use our linting rules to verify that every schema has got a title, every schema has a description, every property in an object schema has a description, et cetera. And then we also use just open API to describe other things. So we can add other constraints to all the properties, min values, max values, um, patterns, um, and formats, et cetera. And then our documentation generation um, to generate our, our API reference documentation. And we'll use all of that um, and, and produce, you know, very complete documentation for all of the fields. Now, I'm totally with you on this, right? This is fabulous. <laughs> and it sounds like you're, you're uh, a bit of a documentation force of nature. Do you, do you have to do much internal evangelism to create alignment around these values, right? The, the, the API first values and good documentation. Do you have to, do you like officially devote some of your time to, I don't know, doing lunchtime talks and saying, you know, this is the this is the right way to think about APIs or, or does it come from just day-to-day -day yeah. interactions? Um, so it's, it's, it's grown organically. So when I first yeah. started Aperture, I launched a program, which was API University. Um, and it, it was different from what like Mike Amundsen does, you know, which is a public offering. Yeah. Um, but it was internally, it was like, okay, we're going to be an API company. It's in our name. What does that mean? And so I would present API University on a monthly basis, or actually it started off, it was like every two weeks. It was a little bit too much actually. Um, but that was where I did the, lay the groundwork really for establishing Aperture as an API 
API-first company. What does it mean to have public APIs? What is our responsibility to our consumers for building those contracts and make, making sure that they are durable, extensible, and have all these values? And I also set off, set down a, a set of API design guidelines, which basically was not just a style sheet, but it was a set of principles. So we said, here are the the primary, here are guiding principles for our API design. Security is always going to be a driving principle since we're in banking, right? So we established that very early to say, we're going to always, security is always going to trump any other decision. We will, we will give up um, usability if it means it's going to be, we're going to maintain security. So we, we know there will be trade-offs. Engineering is always trade-offs. So we know what those trade-offs are. We, we established these principles to help us with the decision procedure, a rubric for how do we make design decisions around our APIs. Um, so security was always foremost in there, but, but also we, we did establish principles for extensibility and evolution of our APIs. So we knew compatibility and, and, and versioning were going to be critical things. Those are stumbling blocks. Um, so we said, you know, we're, we're going to put that into our design principles. So we're always thinking about those things um, as we're doing API design. But ease of use and developer experience are also critical components of this as well. Um, so it's always thinking about the consumer of the APIs, making sure we have good conceptual integrity and good con- conceptual models that, that the developer can understand, avoiding jargon and things like that expressing things in the terms that they understand. In digital banking, you've got a lot of special purpose terms that maybe every developer doesn't really know. So yeah. we try to define all those, what those mean, et cetera. And then we, we codify them where we can in the API, um, but really trying to, to stick with things that people can understand and keeping the API easy to understand and, and consumable so that you don't have to know everything in the API. And, and part of design-driven design and kind of those bounded contexts help us with that. So within this context, we can define, for example, within a transactions API, we know what a transaction is and we know what a transaction memo is, et cetera. And so we have those conceptual models and then the API expresses those as, as closely as we can. And I, I think a lot of companies could, could do with a bit of uh, API, an inwardly focused API university. Um, I, yeah, I could, I, I have so many questions but we've run out of time, unfortunately. Um, I'll have to I'll have to ask you back to go to go even deeper. Um, this has been super insightful. Um, developer relations. A lot of people just think of the uh, sort of the, the the sort of consumer focused API startup side of things, but this is uh-huh. there's a lot more work in getting developers to do the right thing and communicating with developers and encouraging them working across all the functions that happens inside companies and inside larger organizations. You've, you've just given us a tiny little window into it. Uh, it's completely fascinating. Yes. Thank you yeah. so much, David. Um, I'll be Enjoy back for more. I'll be back for more. Thank you so much. Sounds great. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so Bye-bye. much. Bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on the podcast section of our website, voxgeek.com slash podcast. Subscribe to the VoxCake Developer Relations Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any podcasting platform. We publish each Tuesday and Thursday. You can also access the archive of our meetup talks on the VoxCake YouTube channel or the VoxCake website. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.